0: we're back. I want to apologize for the involuntary two-month hiatus OFTV went on. There was an unfortunate incident involving a date with a handsome man, a large glass of water, and my old MacBook that left me without a computer for several weeks. But thankfully, I was eventually able to replace my MacBook and can get back to bringing you the best and weirdest pieces of trans history. So welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip, scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. The subject of today's show is a trans-Latinx trailblazer from the 20th century. She made her mark on stage and screen, appearing in over two dozen films, two TV shows, numerous underground theater productions, and her own traveling cabaret show that played to sold-out venues across North America. For several years, she was one of the triptych of transsexual muses surrounding arguably the most influential artist in the mid-20th century. But she is perhaps best known as the inspiration behind the first verse of Lou Reed's tribute to trans women and sex workers, Walk on the Wild Side. While she's had a long, creative, and deeply inspiring life, in this episode we'll be focusing primarily on her rise to superstardom in the 1960s and 1970s. This episode is the first in our three-part series on the Trans Muses of Andy Warhol. So sit back, dear listeners, and take in the much-abbreviated story of Hollywood Lawn.
1: Holly came from Miami, F.L.A. Hitchhiked her way across the U.S.A. Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs and then he was a she She says, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey,
0: take a walk on the wild side. Candy from Holly Woodlawn was born on October 26, 1946 in Juana Diaz, Puerto Rico. Her mother, Aminta Rodriguez, was Puerto Rican, and her father was an American soldier of German descent. Her parents met while her father was on leave. Apparently, he got her pregnant, quickly married her, and just as quickly departed. In 1948, Holly's mother moved to New York, leaving Holly in the care of her grandmother. As she puts it, she grew up in a house with eight aunts, one uncle, five cousins, two grandparents, six chickens, and three pigs. In 1951, Holly moved in with her mother and her mother's new husband, Polish-Jewish waiter, Joseph Eisenberg, in the Bronx before relocating to Miami Beach in 1955. She describes her early life. When I was younger, I was extremely shy and living in what's now Miami Beach. My father had a nice job, I guess we were middle income. I had good schools. I was just unhappy because I didn't know who I was. I didn't associate with the other kids in school, the suburban minded ones. Plus, I came out very young. I was raised in Puerto Rico for the first few years of my life where the culture is more Caribbean. Everyone's naked, it's hotter, you come out earlier. I was having sex when I was seven and eight in the bushes with my uncles and cousins. Of course, they were only 11 or 12 themselves. I was raised in a house full of women and my uncle was gay. We lived in a little tiny town. So those are my role models. Then Miami Beach. All the Cubans arrived after Castro took over. And that's when I really came out on 21st Street in Miami Beach. As an aside, I feel like I need to say something about this quote. One of the curious things I found in reading about and listening to older, male-assigned queer people's life histories, particularly from the early and mid-20th century, is the surprisingly unashamed recounting, even the positive recollections, of intergenerational and sometimes incestuous relationships that form the backdrop of their early sexual experience, like Holly describes here. For my generation, this seems completely unthinkable, something that must immediately be condemned. And I admit that this is my gut reaction, even in spite of my own mostly positive sexual experiences with much older men when I was growing up in the 90s and 2000s. But it is worth thinking about how and why Holly might not feel condemnatory about these experiences and about the historical and cultural changes that have happened since the 1950s, which shape our current reaction to hearing about it. So I guess I'm just saying we should take a moment to pause and consider what Holly's point of view might've been. Let's continue our story. In Miami Beach, Holly got her first taste for fame when her stepfather began working at a local hotel. Discussing a film she was shooting in 2014, Holly told Pony Step Magazine, We started shooting it last year in Miami when I was there for the Basel Festival. I was staying at the hotel where my father used to work as a waiter when I was a kid. I was almost raised there when I was like 10 years old. I used to hang out there and be running around the place with Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. and the other stars who were staying there. By 1962, Holly wanted out of Miami Beach. Holly had just been adopted by her stepfather that year when she and her friends themselves gay were caught borrowing her father's blue 62 convertible Chevy as the very thorough Warholstars.org timeline recounts. Caught in the act, she admitted to being gay, and as a result was sent to Youth Hall, a youth correctional facility. After getting out, she rechristened herself Holly, after Audrey Hepburn's character in Breakfast at Tiffany's, which had just come out the previous year. And with that, Holly set out to New York, like any classic star to be. Here's how Holly described her move to New York, forever immortalized in Lou Reed's song, in a 2007 interview with The Guardian. I was 15 years old and failing at high school in Miami Beach because I was too busy partying. I was supposed to go to summer school to catch up and really didn't want to, so I joined some of these Cuban queens to go to New York. I hawked some jewelry, and we made it all the way to Georgia, where the money ran out, and we had to hitchhike the rest of the way. Atlanta, Georgia, of all places. You could expect to be tarred and feathered and murdered in those days, but we survived. And I remember the first time I saw New York, the Emerald City. I thought the sidewalks were made of diamonds because of the specks of mica in the asphalt. It was 1962, Marilyn had just died. I lived on the streets like everyone does when they run away. I met some girlfriends who took me in and we found a place in Queens. I was really lucky. I met this guy who fell in love with me and asked me to be his girlfriend, I started taking hormones for a sex change and lived as his wife, working in the days as a clothing model at Saks Fifth Avenue. Oh, the things I did. And for six or seven years, they never knew I was a boy. Not a clue. In 1966, Holly met both of the trans people she would become most closely associated with, First, on March 30th, she met Jackie Curtis, the drag queen and playwright. And that same spring, she met Candy Darling. Together, Holly and Candy sought out a doctor for a combination of oral and injectable hormones, with Jackie occasionally trying them as well. We'll dive deeper into the lives of Holly's closest friends, Jackie and Candy, over the next two installments of our series on the holy trinity of trans Warhol muses. In the meantime, here's an amusing story about some of the hijinks that Holly, Jackie, and Candy would get up to together.
1: Well, someone had to earn some money, so I got a job at Saks Fifth Avenue as a sales girl very Joan Crawford, and they had no clue as to who I was or what I was. So I would call Candy and Jackie and say, get over here, honey. Go into the dressing room, try things on. Just, you know, it's winter, just wear a big coat and then leave. Don't worry, I'm the sales girl. I'm not gonna call security. Candy and Jackie would put on these dresses and then their coats and then leave and then I would meet them across the street in some cheap bar and we'd have a, you know, a martini. And, 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 oh, oh, they'd open their coats and I go, oh my God, how many dresses can you have shut into that coat? And Jackie immediately would rip everyone up. And they were all, I'm talking about designer dresses. I'm not talking about, you know, I'm talking about Real chiffon, not cheap shit. Uh, And Jackie would go, oh, but this needs like,
0: Flashing forward a few years, Holly found herself working as a go-go girl upstate in Syracuse. Warholstars.org recounts the tale. Holly got a job as a weekend go-go dancer in a bar in Syracuse. She wore bikini panties with fluorescent flowers that she made out of crepe paper, placed strategically around her crotch to hide any bulge, as well as over her nipples. When a black light was turned on, the flowers lit up, like Las Vegas, as she danced to the Bee Gees' song, To Love Somebody. She loved the job. Quote, It beat being a file clerk, that was for sure. At the bar, she met a cute 22-year-old. They had a passionate romp, ending up in an assortment of precarious positions to hide her, as the website calls it, manhood. The father of the 22 year old owned a donut factory, and they needed a Miss Donut to ride in the local homecoming parade. Holly obliged happily, riding in the parade in the back seat of a Chevy convertible, wearing a tiara and sash that said, Miss Donut, 1968. In return, she got a year's supply of free donuts. Holly was a regular at the now-famous Stonewall Inn. Yes, the very one we talk about endlessly. The same year as her Miss Donut title, she found herself at the Stonewall Inn where she met a member of the factory scene, the circle of freaks and famous people Andy Warhol surrounded himself with. Her friend Peter introduced her to Silver George, whom she describes in her autobiography A Low Life in High Heels as, quote, a tall, darkly handsome gentleman from the South who was the closest thing to Rep Butler that I've ever known. Silver George, in addition to being a member of the factory, was a speed dealer. According to Holly, Peter lived off Social Security after being deemed legally insane. George and Peter gave Holly her first dose of speed that night. She later said of that first experience that it was, quote, the most fabulous thing I've ever felt in all my life. Through Silver George, Holly met Norman, a, quote, toothless speed user, who then introduced her to Ondine, the mononymous actor who claimed to have originally met Warhol in 1961 at an orgy. Dean described this incident. I was at an orgy, and he, Warhol, was uh, this great presence in the back of the room. And this orgy was run by a friend of mine. And so I said to this person, would you please mind throwing that thing, Warhol, out of here? And that thing was thrown out of there. And when he came up to me the next time, he said to me, nobody has ever thrown me out of a party. He said, you know, don't you know who I am? And I said, well, I don't give a good flying fuck who you are. You just weren't there. You weren't involved. Ondine went on to become friends with Andy, starring in a number of his films. Flash forward to 1968, Ondine met Holly and arranged for her to meet Andy at the factory screening for Flesh. The film premiered only three months after radical feminist icon Valerie Solanas shot and briefly killed Andy Warhol, who was later resuscitated. Flesh, directed by Paul Morrissey and produced by Warhol, starred a young Joe D'Alessandro as a hustler and included the film debuts of Candy Darling and Jackie Curtis. At the party, George made the formal introduction of Holly to Andy, who apparently told her that she was so glamorous and that she should be cast in his next film. He asked for her last name, and not having come up with one yet, Holly told him she didn't have one. A year later, in summer 1969, while watching an episode of I Love Lucy, she would catch her surname Woodlawn off a sign in the background of the show. It was her friend Peter who noticed it and shouted it out for Holly to hear. Later, she would tell people she was the heiress to Woodlawn Cemetery. That same summer in 1969, do I even need to say it? The Stonewall riots happened. In case you've been living in a cave, here's the fast facts on it. Police officers raided the Stonewall Inn on June 28, 1969. They attempted to arrest a number of drag queens and a crowd of between 100 and 150 patrons gathered outside. The crowd started singing, We Shall Overcome and chanting gay power. Police attempted to arrest Stone Butch Stormé de Larvery according to most accounts, which resulted in a struggle. She called to the crowd for help, and all hell broke loose. Now, despite the ever-changing activist soundbites you'll hear bandied about, it's important to remember that there are many varying and conflicting accounts of the Stonewall riots. Even who exactly was there is questionable. As I've heard people quip, if everyone who said they were at Stonewall that night was there, the cops wouldn't have been able to get through the door. All that said... Holly claims to have been there that night and to have taken part in the days of rioting that followed. A month later, Jackie would stage the first of her several public wedding ceremonies on the roof of an apartment building on East 11th Street. Holly was a bridesmaid, and though the groom didn't show up, Holly met John Vaccaro there, who offered her a role in Jackie Curtis's play, Heaven Grand in Amber Orbit. Here's how Holly tells it. I was in Jackie's Heaven Grand in Amber Orbit, which was put on by John Vaccaro's Playhouse of the Ridiculous. John Vaccaro actually fired Jackie from his own play. I was supposed to play Princess Ninga Flinga Dung, the Queen of Song. The character was supposed to have no arms and no legs, and John Vaccaro directed me to crawl across the stage instead of walking. During rehearsal, I couldn't move fast enough and reach my mark on cue, and Vaccaro screamed at me, "Hollywood, Woodlawn, you think you are a woman? You are a drag queen. You are no actress. And finally, the son of a bitch took my role. He played the queen of song and demoted me to the chorus. I was one of the moon reindeer girls. So I decided to make as big a splash as I could in this little roll, and I covered my entire body with Vaseline and glitter, so I looked like a snake. I just wore a little fur-covered g-string, and I had these nice little titties with fur pasties and antlers, which were made of plastic leaves covered in glitter. I left a trail of glitter wherever I walked. When I went to the bathroom and flushed the toilet, it was full of glitter. So I did make my mark in that play and Andy Warhol and Paul Morrissey came to see it and I did an interview with Gabe Power and said I was the new Warhol superstar and they read it and that's what led me to being cast in trash. So it never would have happened without Curtis. Around this time, Holly began living in an apartment with photographer Lee Childers and trans-punk progenitor Jane County, who herself deserves a future episode of OFTV. As WarholStars.org recounts it, Some hippie friends of Lee's stopped by the apartment on their way home from Woodstock. The group included a 15-year-old boy who Holly noticed sitting on her bed playing his guitar when she returned from a late night at Max's with friends Rita Redd, Estelle, and Jackie Curtis. When Holly saw Johnny, she quote, swooped in for the kill, and they became lovers. Johnny later accompanied her to the filming of Trash and ended up playing the role of the young student that Holly injected with drugs. In October, Paul Morrissey began filming Trash, Holly's first film, in the basement of his brownstone on 6th Street between 1st and 2nd. Apparently, Morrissey intended the film to be an anti-drug piece. Holly was cast in a single scene for which she was paid $25 a day, the standard Warhol actor day rate. But after seeing The Rushes, Morrissey brought her back for more shooting. Sissy Spacek also made her debut in the film as a teenager, though her part was later cut from the movie. In a small bit of irony, Holly spent her last day's pay of $25 for the anti-drug art film on heroin. The film premiered in 1970 to underground acclaim, and Holly in particular was singled out for her performance. Gay film director George Cukor mounted a campaign to have her nominated for an Academy Award, though the confusion over whether she could be nominated as an actress or as an actor is often credited for why this didn't pan out. Holly's sudden newfound fame was everything she'd hoped for, except financially. In Superstar in a House Dress, she recounts this story from 1970. There was a major incident where I wound up in jail. It was 1970, and I had a friend who was apartment-sitting at this fabulous place near the United Nations. It was the apartment of the French ambassador to the UN. He was traveling, and my friend had the place for several weeks. I stayed with him in this divine luxury, and, of course, I couldn't help trying on the wife's dresses and things. And while I was peeking into drawers, we found her passport and her checkbook. I had some photo proof sheet from a Jack Mitchell shoot, and one of the shots was just the right size. I cut it out, and we taped it over it so it looked like it was laminated to the passport. So my friend and I went to the bank, and I had made out a check for $2,000 and used the fake passport, and we got away with $2,000. Of course, after a few days, that was gone, so we stupidly went back and tried it again, and they nabbed me. I spent a month in jail. In Variety, there was a banner headline, Trash Star Found in Trash Can. The warden came up to me and said, Oh, is this you? And there is a photo of me in the Sunday New York Times reviewing the film saying Holly Woodlawn is fabulous in trash. Later that day, he says, you are now out on bail. And I said, who has paid my bail? It was the artist Larry Rivers. I called him right up to thank him. And he said, come on over. Jackie Curtis is here. She called me up and said, you got to get Holly out of jail. If it hadn't been for Jackie, I would have been in jail for God knows how long. Andy Warhol didn't come to my rescue. My parents didn't even come to my rescue. Jackie called up everyone and said, you can't let Holly rot in jail. Her movies just opened. Jackie said, Larry and I are going to take you out to see trash tonight and I have alerted the media. There are going to be photographers and reporters there. That sounded wonderful but I had been in jail for 30 days. So Larry, angel that he was, took us to Bloomingdale's and said, girls, go shopping. And we did. I got my hair done, and Jackie and I went through all the dresses, and I got this fabulous dress, and Jackie got a fabulous house dress. We went back to Larry's to get ready for the limousine ride to the theater. What does Curtis do? She just rips the shit out of her brand new dress so it looked like tattered rags. Then she takes her new stockings and just tears them to shreds. I said, Jackie, what are you doing? She goes, it's a look, isn't it? Over the next few years, Holly would bask in her new fame as a Warhol superstar. She recounts, I never had an apartment lease until I was maybe 30. Who had to pay rent? Jackie, Candy, and I were the toast of the town for years. Parties and places to go every night, different places to crash every day. We couch surfed our way around Manhattan for years and years. We were professional house guests. She, Jackie, and Candy, made even more famous by the next Warhol film, Women in Trouble, a satire of the women's liberation movement starring all three, were quick to realize the only person getting rich off their being famous was Andy. Hopped up on speed, they would regularly shake him down for money. Holly describes one of these typical shakedowns in Superstar in a House Dress. So one afternoon, we went over to the factory to visit Andy. Really, we arrived unannounced like this because we were there to hit him up for some money, which we had done before. But Pat Hackett, who was secretary, stopped us and said that Andy wasn't there. There was a nice reception area with some chairs, so we said we'd just wait but she said he had called and said he wasn't coming in. So we went across the street to Irving Place, and sure enough, in less than an hour, there came a taxi, and Andy got out, and we saw him go upstairs. So we went back into the building and down into the basement, and we found the power panel. It was unlocked, and everything was labeled. So we shut off every breaker on Andy's floor. Then we went upstairs in the elevator, and when the door opened, we screamed into the dark space, Andy Warhol, you are dead! We know how to use a gun! And made our exit. The next day, our rent was paid. This behavior did not exactly endear Holly, Jackie, and Candy to Warhol. Eventually, he grew tired of it and moved on to other muses. But even without Andy, Holly continued to be an underground darling, replacing Candy in Jackie's 1971 play, Vain Victory. Here's what Holly had to say about it. I was in Vain Victory for part of the run in 1971. Nobody ever knew what the story was about because everyone was so bombed and high. Miss Candy Darling was a mermaid named Bella Donna Beads, and every night the play changed because nobody ever remembered their lines. So finally, Miss Darling quit the show. She said, I refuse to work with non-professionals. So Jackie had me take over her role, and the next night, Miss Darling came with a rich society boyfriend and sat right in the front row because she wanted to see what a disaster I would be playing her role, Donna Bella Beads. Backstage, we were crocola, honey. The vodka and the speed were rampant. So here I was in Candy's mermaid costume in a wheelchair, and it was my first time making the entrance, and I started rolling the wheelchair, and I didn't know how to make it stop. So the wheelchair rolled right over the footlights, and the little front wheels went off the stage. I fell screaming right into the front row of the audience and landed literally in Miss Darling's lap, and she leapt up, pushing me off of her. She was screaming blue murder, accusing me of doing it deliberately. This absolutely brought the house down. Both the cast and the audience were completely hysterical. Here I was, stuck in a mermaid outfit with my legs strapped together, and I was seriously drunk, and I could not get up. So everybody picked me up and reseated me in the wheelchair on stage while Miss Darling and her date just stormed out of there, cursing and ranting. The audience loved it and applauded. They thought it was part of the show. People came the next night and were disappointed I didn't catapult into the audience. Later that year, she was briefly incarcerated for shoplifting in Puerto Rico. She followed the success of *Vain Victory up in 1972, starring in a low-budget musical feature film called Scarecrow in a Garden of Cucumbers, whose premise was to have a trans woman star in a film without revealing she was trans. Shocking, right? The only other notable fact about it is that it includes a musical performance by a young Bette Midler, The following year, she starred in an art film, Broken Goddess, which is really one of the peak moments of Holly's high art career. It's hard to get a copy of, but you can watch a clip of it on YouTube. The next year, Holly's friend Candy Darling died of lymphoma at the age of 29, which we'll recount in more detail in the following episodes of our series. But despite losing their friend, the show must go on, so, Jackie and Holly starred in a critically acclaimed cabaret show called Cabaret in the Sky at the New York Culture Center in 1974. Holly says, quote, My favorite time working with Curtis was Cabaret in the Sky, an evening with Holly Woodlawn and Jackie Curtis at the New York Culture Center at Columbus Circle. Everyone thought that Jackie and I hated each other, so we developed this funny introduction. Jackie would perform her set first. Then she would sing the first few bars of Stairway to the Stars. Then she would suddenly stop mid-phrase and slam her hand angrily down on top of the Steinway Grand, yelling, Stop the music! Stop the music! There was stunned silence in the audience, and then Jackie would say, You know... I really don't mind being the warm-up act for that Latin from Manhattan, Hollywood Lawn, but you should know we've got her locked upstairs in a cold rubber room. The audience just loved it. Of course, we didn't hate each other. Curtis and I were girlfriends cut from the same cloth. Cabaret in the Sky was a tremendous success, and we wound up every show by singing a duet of Just In Time with our arms around each other. It was the most amazing and wonderful time, the most pleasure I have ever had performing with anyone. After this, though, things began to peter out. In 1977, she moved to San Francisco, but returned to New York to appear on the Geraldo Rivera show. Then she was caught on violating probation and sent to jail again. This time, it was politician Ethan Ghetto who got her out and organized a benefit for her, but by the following year, she moved back into her parents' house in Miami, cutting her hair and detransitioning for a time. She spent her time in Miami working as a busser at a chain restaurant before returning to New York in the early 80s, where she found work in cabarets and clubs such as the Limelight. Appearances she was only paid $50 for, according to her autobiography, In 1982, depressed over the death of her friend Vincent Nasso from AIDS-related complications, Holly took an overdose of pills. She called her friend Joyce, who rushed her to the hospital where they pumped her stomach. The experience led her to quit using drugs regularly. In the early 1990s, she published her autobiography, A Low Life in High Heels, and scored a series of bit parts in small gay movies, including, most notably, Billy's Hollywood Screen Kiss, which is probably where I first saw her, watching it late at night when Showcase would play gay movies, the volume turned almost all the way down so my parents wouldn't hear it. The 2000s saw a wave of nostalgia for Warhol's superstars, landing her a series of interviews and related documentaries and giving her the opportunity to tour her cabaret acts successfully across the U.S. and Canada. Championed in the 2010s by the brilliant trans lady artist Zachary Drucker, Holly's comeback culminated in two equally important achievements. First, starring in Zachary's art film She Gone Rogue, as Aunt Holly, one of the three transfeminine archetypal mothers Drucker encounters in a dreamy wonderland she escapes into to avoid dealing with her relationship problems with the character played by co-star and co-director Reese Ernst. And the second achievement saw her land a role on the much-talked-about Amazon series Transparent in 2015. Later in 2015, Holly fell suddenly ill she was taken to Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, where they discovered lesions on her brain and liver. The lesions turned out to be cancerous. At first, she was able to return home, where she received home-based care, but following flooding, was moved to an assisted living facility that October. Old friend and Warhol superstar Joe D'Alessandro attempted to visit Holly in late 2015, but was initially barred as he was not on the approved list given by her medical proxy, a real estate agent named Robert Starr. After a month of arguing over whether he could visit, D'Alessandro was finally given permission to see her, and was with her the day she died on December 6, 2015. There's some serious scandal and intrigue that followed, involving a GoFundMe page, Penny Arcade, and a number of other Warhol stars, but out of respect for Holly's memory and because we're running a long episode, I'll let you go look all that up over at warholstars.org by yourself. It's a scintillating read for gossip hounds, trust me. And thus ends the life of the original trans Latina superstar, Hollywood Lawn. Her legacy will surely live on for decades, even beyond that song. And so I'll leave you with Miss Woodlawn herself singing Do You Miss Me? at a cabaret in September 1980 in New York City.
1: The, table by the door I
0: left the house the way it was before listening to this episode of One From The Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One From The Vaults is written, recorded and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. I am particularly indebted to Craig B. Heiberger's book and film Superstar in a House Dress and Gary Komenes' excellent and thorough Warholstars.org website. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com OFTV. You can also tweet at me, at Morgan M. Page, on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night.